Well, as we come this morning to the Word of God, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1. If you'd turn there in your copy of God's Word, Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, verses 5 through 9 of Titus 1 will be our text this morning. And, you know, Titus is only three short chapters. 46 verses in the whole book. There are other chapters of the Bible that are longer than the whole book of Titus. But believe me, what it lacks in size, it more than makes up for in power. And we're going to see a little of that this morning. So as you turn, I've titled our message for this morning, For What Reason? For What Reason? It's a question that's often asked, that is, for what reason or, or why does this or that happen? It's a question that's constantly being asked, why and you fill in the blank, for what reason? Or why are we doing this or that? Or why did this or that thing happen? And it's a, a question that's being asked and it's an important question, one that needs to be asked of our earthly existence and also one that needs to be asked of our divine understanding. And that's why of all that exists in heaven and the whys of all that occurs on this earth. These are important questions. Scripture often asks them. I often find people who ask why with respect to Scripture and God's demands upon their lives. And fundamentally, they're asking our title question, for what reason? And as I've answered the question, and and just as often, quite simply said, because God says so, I lamentably see people turn and they turn to their own devices and away from those answers, just as we saw in Judges and in Deuteronomy, where the text tells us that everyone did right in their own eyes. And they do what is right in their own eyes, much like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And man, after we sing the songs that we just did, how glorious eternal life is. And he asked the right question. And Jesus said, you know, you must fulfill all the law. And and he said, oh, I keep the law fastidiously. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, and that is to take all your wealth and to give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the rich man went away disheartened. Because he couldn't do that. And the reason that we see this, this this great difficulty and tragedy that occurs in this and even eternal separation from God from those that will not yield. And the, the, the aspect and the explanation is very simple. That amidst a flurry of compound conditions and consequent causes comes the conclusion and that conclusion is disobedience. Disobedience to God, disobedience to parents, disobedience to the authority that God has placed over each of us. And it often starts so slow. Just a little step off course, just a little step away from what we know we're supposed to do. And soon we're miles apart from God and the truth of his word. And this is exactly what we see at the beginning of the text of Titus. There was a needed course correction. And Paul gives Titus this direction. That is a new course of action. And as he does so, he answers the question, for what reason? Let's look at our text together and then we'll make some comments about it. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. I'm going to go back to verse 1 of Titus 1 just for context. Titus 1 and 1. 
Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. For what reason? Our theme, which you have along with your title and outline in your bulletins, is four required facets of elders in every church. Four required facets of elders in every church. Paul begins with this beautiful introduction, a beauty that reminds me of a Thomas Kincaid painting. Intense color and depth, so rich and unfathomable that at one look you can't possibly inhale all of the beauty that exists there. And so it is with Paul's introduction where he shows himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And his slavery is for the faith of other believers. And it is for the blessings of God in revealing scripture to him. That which results in eternal life and comes from God alone. The one who cannot lie. And who gave his word, the Bible. And did so in his perfect timing. The stellar introduction, beloved, is something that we ought as believers, every one of us, be able to claim here today. That you are a willing slave of Jesus Christ. And that your heart's desire is to share his word, the gospel, and his love with the world around us that so desperately needs it. And to rejoice that God has revealed it to you, which has given you eternal life as well. That is, if you have believed in and continue to live a life of obedience that Jesus Christ is your Lord and that he is accomplishing his perfect salvation in every one of our lives. This takes us to our first point, which I've titled an overarching force. An overarching force. Verse five begins, and, and as Paul has given us this glowing introduction that reminds us of God's love affair with us and calls us back to remember our devotion to him, then he moves to this first subject to Titus in verse five. And here is where we get Paul's explanation and our message title, for what reason? And he begins verse five, for this reason. And here's our explanation for the first section. Paul left Titus in Crete 
for this reason. And two factors are given. The first is to set in order what remains. This word set in order is also translated as to correct or to fix what is lacking. And this is the overarching force. Paul says to Titus, there's a problem, fix it. The verb for set in order is a compound word, and yet the root of that word is something we're very familiar with. It's the Greek word orthao. It's where we get the word orthodontics and orthopedics. That is to set something straight, to set straight teeth or to set straight bones. And so Titus was to set things straight. That is certain doctrines and practices. And what he was to set straight is that which remained in verse 5. In other words, the work had already been started probably by Paul, perhaps some of the other apostles or disciples. And yet there was more work that needed to be done. And like the orthodontist or the orthopedist, Titus was to set straight what had been broken or what had gone awry. And from the nature of the next verses, we know these were moral and theological problems. And these problems were occurring within the church leadership. If we jump to verses 10 and 11 of Titus 1, we see this where it says in Titus 1 and 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. These men had come in and they're teaching, they're rebellious, they're deceptive, so they're leading people astray, teaching what they should not teach, and they're doing it for sordid gain. In 1 Timothy, Paul focuses on this same element of greed. These men were greedy for inappropriate gain. I love the King James Version on this particular verse and phrase. The King James Version calls this filthy lucre. I just think that is so appropriate. Those who are pursuing money out of inappropriate and evil motives. Now, money is not evil in and of itself, but it is the, the wrongful pursuit of money that results in all sorts of evil. It is when money becomes an end in and of itself. And these men are proclaiming what people want to hear. See, there's people that their ears are tickling and they want to hear certain things. And these men know that, so they are proclaiming these errant doctrine so that they can get money. So Titus' first order is to set things straight. This is the for what reason. And for what reason was Titus there to set things straight, to get rid of these wicked men? And then comes the second factor in verse 5, the how. It's important to know what we're to do. And the what is to set in order what remains. But it's just as important to know how, isn't it? Oftentimes in life, we know what needs to be done. But it's the how that is the big question. Paul tells Titus the how, which is to appoint elders in every city. This is the correction. This is the how. Put men whose character meets God's standard in charge of the churches. Not these charlatans whose only goal is financial gain. This is the the prosperity gospel 
where they are proclaiming these errant doctrines for one purpose, and that is so that the preacher can get rich. They are sitting and they are proclaiming to people that, look, if you're having difficulty in your life, if you're having health struggles, if you're having financial struggles, if you're having relationship struggles, the reason that you're having them is because you're not giving enough to us. And so if you give more, then God will bless you. This is a lie from the pit of hell. And it is a lie that is being perpetrated across this planet. It is prominent in Africa. And there is way too much of it going on right here in our country. And so this is Paul's command to Timothy to appoint elders. Notice again that the term elders is plural. And every time in scripture, with the exception of when an individual man is being called an elder, the text shows a plurality of elders and or deacons. Remember also the interchangeability of the terms we've talked about. How elder and overseer and pastor or shepherd all are three terms describing one office. They are three different functions of one individual. And we've repeatedly addressed this parallel and we even see it in our text. In verse five, you'll see the term elder used there. That's the Greek word presbyteros. And if you jump down to verse seven, you'll see the word overseer. That is the word episkopos. So even within our text, the parallel of these terms exist. And by the way, that term for pastor or shepherd is poimain. And you can look to 1 Peter chapter 5. And in 1 Peter 5, you'll see the parallel of pastor with overseer. You can look at Acts 17 or Acts 20 and verse 17 and 28. And there you will see the same overlapping of terms. So Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city. Now, when we think of Crete, we might say, oh, that's just a big city. But no, it's an island with many cities. Crete is about 160 miles long, about 35 miles wide, and roughly the same size as the nation of Israel. And there are many cities in it. Now, some have taken this verse and come up with an errant perspective that because it says appoint elders in every city, that means that there only needs to be one elder in a church. And in fact, this is one of the foundational arguments behind congregational rule that exists in many Baptistic churches. And that's a wrong understanding. It doesn't state only that there are elders in every city such that the deacons and the one pastor, the super elder and other pastors in the city make up the plurality. And we know that because of Acts 14, 23. And Paul writes in Acts 14 and 23 that when they had appointed elders for them in every church, notice plurality in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Always in every church, there is to be a plurality of elders, uh, a multiplication of men whom God has called to the office of elder to lead his flock. And some will say, well, what about a church plant where there's a pastor and there aren't men that are yet able to do this? In that case, the pastor's first responsibility is to begin to train men and God will, in his faithfulness to those churches that he plants and establishes, gift and bring forth men such that there will be a plurality of men to lead the church. 
Paul emphatically adds more force to this at the end of verse 5 by stating this command, as I directed you. So it's not just that here's what you're to do, but let me emphasize this to say this is a command. This is my directive. This is what you must do. Reminds me very much of the end of my first year in college. I went to the University of Puget Sound and basically failed out because I was such a horrible student. Don't try that at home. And at the end of the first year, my dad calls and I'm in Tacoma and I'm like, Dad, you know, uh, sorry about that, but I'm going to get my act together here. And I know some of you that have college students are wincing, but don't be. They're way better than I was. And I'm like, Dad, I'm going to get my act together. I'll do better next year. And he goes, no, that's not what we're going to do. I have a new plan for you and you're coming back to Idaho because I'm not spending that kind of money on your highbrow, fancy private education. You can come back with everybody else and go to college. So we have to recognize that that is the, the same kind of authoritarian and authoritative direction that Paul gives and that God is giving through him and that God will give to us. And beloved, don't get into a situation in your life where you're sitting and explaining, oh, oh but God, I'm going to get this right soon. And he brings the hammer down on you. Because he loves us so much, he will do that. So let us be those who quickly and willingly submit and turn from the error that's in every one of our lives so that we might learn on our own. So an overarching force is fix the problem and the way to do it is with godly elders and we see what they look like in our second point which I've titled a homeward foundation. A homeward foundation. There are several qualifications of an elder in these verses, and we're going to look at each of them, but only in an overview fashion. Uh, our recent devotional series has gone into greater detail on these, and you can refer to those for a deeper dive into any of these particular attributes which you'd like more information about. But Paul addresses the family qualification in our first point, a homeward foundation in verse 6, where he says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. It's important to remember the general applicability of these qualifications. They're demanded to be evidenced by the elder but they're also called for by each and every Christian. So as we look at these qualifications, beloved, I'd ask you to ask yourselves, how do you fare in each of these areas? Well, Paul begins for the elder that he is to be above reproach. It's a conditional clause. That is, if any man is above reproach. And it means that no man is to be accepted without this qualification. The general meaning of above reproach means not able to lay a charge against. It's a legal term that the man is so blameless that an accusation can't rightly be waged against him. Oh, some may wage the accusation, but it will immediately be understood that the man is above reproach and that such accusations have no validity. This is so important, Paul reuses it in verse 7, where he uses the parallel term overseer. Not only is the elder required to be above reproach, as we see in verses 6 and 7, but so also are deacons, per 1 Timothy 3.10. 
being above reproach is that overarching characteristic of an elder. And each of the next characteristics are in these verses are underneath that term. It's like an umbrella that guides all of the rest of the qualifications in the list. And above reproach or not able to have a charge against him in any of these areas. The next qualification is the husband of one wife. Now this qualification is critically important and this is why it is listed first in our text. It is the overarching above reproach qualification. It means literally faithful to one's own wife. Faithful to one's own life. Literally in the Greek, it is one woman man. The emphasis on one woman. This is a culture where there was much polygamy ongoing. And as a result of that, Paul is telling Titus and setting the qualification both here in the church in Crete and in 1 Timothy for Ephesus that they are to be faithful to their one wife. And that this is necessarily to be the situation. Now, this isn't a marital requirement. Men who have been widowed are still fully qualified and able to serve as an elder. Single men who have never been married and who have committed their lives to Christ are able to serve as an elder. But for those who are married, they must be faithful to that one wife. And any who interpret this verse otherwise do violence to scripture and its proper interpretation when they say that this term means something else. It means the man who is married is morally and completely faithful to his own wife. Likewise, the unmarried man is also required to be marital, excuse me, morally faithful to God. It's one who does not fail under the scrutiny of Matthew 5:28 married or unmarried, where the Lord says, you've heard it said that a man shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, the man who has looked at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. So for the elder, this must not be the case. This verse also does not, and hear me carefully, does not forbid divorced men from serving in the role of elder. Although tremendous scrutiny must be applied if a man has a divorce in his background and may well be disqualified, but not necessarily and not by definition. The fundamental element is the man be faithful and fully committed to his wife. Our daily devotionals from Friday and Saturday have had some important detail on this area, as did those back from late May and early June as we looked at 1 Timothy. And you can also see our church position paper on this subject for more detail. Third, the elder is to have children who believe. This statement goes beyond the family qualification in 1 Timothy 3 and 4, which says that the elder must manage his own household well. However, the two are intricately linked. There are two Greek words which come from the same root, not considering the verb system. One is translated as faith. The other, which is our word in verse 6, is an adjective, and it is translated as either believer or believing or faithful. Prior to the Legacy Standard Bible, every major version translated this as believer 
or believing. The use of faithful for this translation is also argued by many. And yet this discussion is beyond the scope of our message this morning and we could spend the rest of the morning and probably a couple afterwards going into all of those facets. But like the previous husband of one wife, this isn't saying the elder must have children. He does not. And obviously so if he's never been married. This isn't saying a man also can save his own children, as some would allege. Only God can save, and he saves only those whom he chooses. But this doesn't remove the consideration of the previous word's translation, as some will conclude. The word for children here refers to children of any age. How do we know that? Because the very same word is used back in verse 4. If you bounce back up to verse 4, you see to Titus, my true child in a common faith. It applies to children of any age and here even applies to Titus. Thus it applies also to grown children. Some have argued, well, what about small children? Is it saying then that somehow our, our young children have to be saved or the elder isn't qualified? No, it's not saying that. If a child is too small, then the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, where the elder manages his own household well, would be those which apply. It's not biblical to expect that a young child at a very small age would be believers, for they cannot be. They have not come to the point where they understand the consequences of their decision or that their actions of sin are truly rebellion against God. Oh, they do sin. Everyone from the beginning, uh, you know, we're born in sin. And I remember the pastor that I was saved under going to meet his first grandchild. I'm sure I've shared this, but don't interrupt me. I love telling the story. Uh, went to meet this grandbaby and walked in and said, oh, what a beautiful ball of sin. His wife was ready to knock him out, but he was right. So they, we recognize this, but children at a young age are under the protection of God. They are before that, they are in that age of innocence and before an age of accountability, such that should one of them perish, they are immediately with God, that God protects them until that point where they know to understand right and wrong. So this word is children of any age but is further modified by the next phrase, giving us an indication of the age group discussed. The last phrase of verse 6 reads, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The first word dissipation means a reckless pursuit of wanton pleasure and debauchery. One lexicon describes this as one who has abandoned himself to reckless immoral behavior. We see this same word for dissipation in Ephesians 5.18, which says, And do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So being drunk with wine is parallel to dissipation because one is not in control of his own body. He is not in control of what's going on and certainly not being controlled by the Spirit. So he is living outside of a manner of a controlled lifestyle. The same root word is used in Luke 15, 13 of the prodigal son, which in that text later describes his actions and this phrase as one who devours his wealth with prostitutes. 
Rebellion is the last word. This word means insubordinate or a lifestyle of wild living. The meaning of the Greek word is one without submission. So someone willfully and constantly exalting themselves against those whose authority they are to be under. In Hebrews 2.8, this word describes those unsubjugated and willfully opposing Christ's authority. Dissipation and rebellion are not something applicable to younger children as is clearly indicated in these definitions. Well, after our familial qualifications come the moral qualifications in our third point, an inward focus, an inward focus. Verse 7 focuses on the negative and the internal moral aspects of the elder where it says, For the overseer must not be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Above reproach is again restated to emphasize the vital nature of this overarching condition. And he uses the word overseer to parallel the word elder as we've previously discussed. The overseer is discussed as God's steward. This is a powerful responsibility. This is a man whom God has given the authority to manage the church and the things belonging to God. He's given that overseer full authority per Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. And this is a huge responsibility to think that God has called you to have authority over his precious children whom he has brought into the church and that you will one day stand before him and give an account of what you have done to shepherd and guide the souls of those whom he's placed under your charge. It's a daunting consideration and one that is not to be taken lightly. And these five negative presentations cannot be a part of the elder's life. Not self-willed or not arrogant as some versions translate it begins the list. The Greek word literally means to be pleased with or delighted with oneself. Now I think we all know people like this, don't we? I mean, the people that we expect that before they walk out of the house, spend about 30 minutes in the mirror going, oh yeah, that's pretty special. You're looking pretty good. I think you're ready. You know, no, that's, that's not at all what the elder must be. He must not be self-willed. He must not be thinking much of himself. Next, he must not be quick-tempered. Literally, in the Greek, not soon to anger. The origin of the word looks to one who is a striker or who is a brawler. This is not an occasional outburst, but this is a propensity to anger. And again, we all know angry people, those who are often inclined to lash out. We went downtown to the Basque Festival last night. I love chorizos. And um, that wasn't part of the notes. And talking, ran into a young man who I knew from Haley. And I was asking him about his brother who I went to school with and played football and basketball with. And he said, you know, I don't talk to him very much because his wife is such an angry person. 
Whenever he leaves the room, she just starts launching and she's angry about him. She's angry about everything and I just don't care to be around her. And as with each qualification, none of God's children are to be quick-tempered. James 1.20 gives us some insight where it says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If we are angry about what happens to us, beloved, that is not righteous anger. If we are angry because God is offended, then we may be on the verge of righteous anger. Although even then it may be questionable. But if somebody's done something to you and you're upset about it, um, get over it. That's not righteous anger. The, it's, it's interesting to recognize all that this means and, and how big an, ang, an issue anger is. And the Lord tells us about it in Matthew 5, 22, where he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, a greater level of anger, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool, a maximum expression of anger, shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell. Anger is a vexation of the soul. And it affects all who are around it. Veggie Tales has strayed far from its biblical moorings and so I don't sing it in the pulpit anymore. But if you have a chance to go watch Angry Eyebrows, you should. Because it takes us right back to the point. And if you know someone who's an angry person, grab that video and go watch it. Because anger gets on everyone that's around it. It just wears off. And when you're around an angry people person, you start to get kind of disgruntled and you start to get a little ground and you start to bring a little of that anger forward. We can't have any of that. Third, not addicted to wine. This is self-explanatory. A man who is addicted to wine is not controlled by the Spirit as we saw in Ephesians 5.18. He's controlled by alcohol. He's controlled by a weak nature that cannot control the substances that he consumes and has an addictive nature towards alcohol which is way too common in our world and is horrifically detrimental. The elder must have none of this for he is not in control of his life and beloved, neither must the Christian be controlled by wine. Fourth, not pugnacious. This means literally not given to blows. It's similar to quick tempered, uh, to quick temper and anger, but it describes the specific response. The man's first reaction is to fighting. Something happens, boom, I want to pop him. This attitude will destroy the man and would destroy the elder board on which he might sit because tensions will and do arise in those meetings as matters of emotion come up and as matters of great passion come up and the elder must be able to remain calm and peaceable and to discuss each matter in a reasonable fashion. And so must the Christian. Fifth is not fond of sordid gain. The Greek word means not greedy for dishonest gain. It's similar to, the, to, to free from the love of money in 1 Timothy 3.3. And it's, it's directly used there of a qualification for deacon also in 1 Timothy 3.8. In Titus 1.11, we read and saw the effect of this. And we'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing. You see how each of these negative aspects are internal, don't you? They're 
elements that are inherent to a man's character. And if they exist, they preclude that man from service. And if they exist in the Christian, they must be eradicated because they will tear down your faith. So let's look at the positive external presentations in verse 8, which says, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. These are the positive qualifications that an elder must exhibit. And again, this is to apply to every person in the church. And first is that they be hospitable. A Greek compound meaning love or affection of strangers. The elder must be ready to freely help those in need. That with his time and his resources and his encouragement. Because this is one of the primary goals. To reach out to others and to take those whom you do not know. Inside and primarily outside the church. To draw them in to the love of Christ. Second, he must love what is good. This reminds me of the incredible text in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. These are the things that we must focus on, the things that are good. The word good in the scripture means that which is the opposite of evil. We see this word used so prominently in the first chapter of our Bibles in Genesis 1. And as God got to the end of each day of creation, he looked over what he's made and said, it is good. And in Genesis 1.31, at the end of all of creation, he looked over it and said, it is very good. There was no error. There was no evil. There was no sin. There was no death. It was perfect and right and good. And this verse wonderfully embodies loving what is good. Third, the elder must be sensible. The word means being of sound mind. It's translated as prudent in 1 Timothy 3.2. Clearly, this must be the characteristic of an elder. He must be sensible. He must be able to take different arguments and to weigh the perspectives and to be able to address what's there and to rightly understand and discern the arguments brought forth. Fourth, he is just. This could be translated as righteous in a sense of fairness. An elder, again, must be able to take those arguments and assess them and bring forth that which is legally right, that which is just, as if a judge making a determination between guilty or not guilty. The elder has to look at the arguments brought before him and must be able to weigh them and bring forth the decision that is just, that is righteous and right. Fifth, he is devout. The Greek word is sometimes translated as holy. As we talk about words like righteous or holy, again, we are not talking about some type of sinless perfection. Because as we've discussed, that does not exist in any man except the God-man, Jesus Christ. Yet each sin is to be confessed. And in this, not only elders, but all believers can be cleansed from all unrighteousness, as 1 John 1.9 tells us. And what a beautiful verse that is, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins. And that's overwhelming. But the verse doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
wow, that's amazing that in our tiny act of faithfulness, God comes uh, an ocean's depth to wash over us the purity of his water. Sixth, he is to be self-controlled. This word means literally having strength over. And it directly relates to a man's sin. A self-controlled man closely monitors his own life. He continually seeks the Lord's face to know his own sin. Beloved, every one of us in the room today and every Christian in the world has sin that they do not know. That God is yet still revealing to them. And we ought to be so thankful to him that when he brought us to himself, he didn't reveal all that sin at once because it would crush us to understand that. So this man is constantly seeking to have strength over that. And the elder sin is so vital that scripture makes a strong admonition against it in 1 Timothy 5. And it says this in 1 Timothy 5 and 20. Those who continue in sin, in the context is speaking about elders, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Would you like to have your sins read before the whole congregation? Not me. But this is the rebuke that an elder faces. And yet, beloved, we ought not just think of this and say, oh, the elder has this consideration and this daunting task. Where are our sins? Our sins are laid bare before the face of God. It's as if our sins are at the, on the jumbotron at Dodger Stadium. And God is seeing each and every one of them because he, nothing is hidden from his sight. So we need each consider each of these negative and positive admonitions and ask ourselves, how are we doing in these areas? Brothers and sisters, let us not be the man James talks about who looks at his natural face in the mirror and then goes away as if he didn't know what he'd saw. Let us be those who are effectual hearers and doers of the word of God. These are the inward manifestations of the elder and take us to our fourth point, an outward faculty. An outward faculty. Look at verse 9 of Titus 1 with me. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Having looked at the familial and the moral characteristics, we shift to the primary ministry of the faithful elder which is his teaching that which sets him apart by the Holy Spirit's gifting the elder must be gifted to teach and this verse describes not a natural gifting to teach but a God given gift first he must hold fast the faithful word that word hold fast means to cling to with all of one's strength I'm reminded of the picture of a, a man being washed in a horrific flood who gets thrown a rope by the rescuers and as three or four men hold he grabs that rope and as the waves wash over him he's holding to it with all of his life that is the clinging that the elder must have to scripture Underneath this heading are two, du two duties. To exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. To exhort means to encourage, to urge. It is to come alongside, to strengthen. And Jesus uses this word to describe the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the advocate. 
The one who comes alongside to strengthen and encourage. And the elder to his exhort in sound doctrine. The word literally means things which are healthy. And it is where we get our English word hygienic. Things which are wholesome, which protect and preserve life. And this of course comes from the word of God. One commentator writes... Contrary to what is offered in much popular preaching today, the Bible is not a resource for truth, but is the divinely revealed source of truth. It is not a supplementary text, but the only text. Its truths are not optional, but mandatory. The pastor's purpose is not to make scripture relevant to his people, but to enable them to understand doctrine, which becomes the foundation of their spiritual living. The Bible is user-friendly to those who humbly submit to its profound truth, end quote. Clearly, the elder's responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God is mightily emphasized here. Second, he must be refuting those who contradict Those who contradict God's word must be refuted. Those who come in and teach their errant doctrine or their damning heresy, elders must stand for that truth. And when false teachers arise, it must be swiftly attacked because if not, people will be washed away with their false teaching. And many false teachers come under different guises, but they all have one thing in common. They contradict God's word. And when that happens, they must be rebuked. They must be brought to correction. And if unwilling to accept, they must be removed. And if they are indeed false teachers, there will be no option but to remove them because their whole premise is set upon destroying the church. So elders' outward faculty is that gift of God to proclaim his word and to teach. Now this is different from preaching, but every elder must evidence this faculty and it must be evidence to the congregation. The church in Crete had gotten off course. Next week we'll see some of what that looked like. And so Paul gives us instruction on how preparing, examining, and placing godly men can correct the fundamental issues of disobedience. And the way that the Bible and godly elders accomplish this is by example, by teaching, by correcting error. And doing these elements biblically, beloved, results in obedience. And this is what must characterize each of our lives obedience because one step off path and we can soon find ourselves far apart from the truth of the word and we must not let this happen to us beloved if God is going to bless us we must be obedient if we want his greatest blessings in our life personally we must be obedient to him in every possible way if we want God's blessings on our church we must likewise be obedient to him in every way So when it comes to answering the question, for what reason? The answer is because God says so. God clearly speaks and repeatedly teaches us about elders in the church. So let us be obedient to what our heavenly father asks of us. Elders are those who fulfill the explanations of our texts. And their role is to help every individual in the church attain to that same standard. May we be those who are submissive to Hebrews where it tells us to let them do that with joy and not with grief. 
You know, as we look at these characteristics, brothers and sisters, these apply to all of us. So assess your own life. How is your familial situation? How are you doing with respect to being self-willed, not quick-tempered, not fond of sordid gain? How is your hospitality? How do you do at loving what is good and showing it? How is your sensibility and your justice, your devoutness, and your self-control? Beloved, how are we doing at holding to the truth of the word of God? Because this isn't just to the elders, it applies to each and every one of us. So may God grant us to participate and not hinder this work in our church and in our own lives. Amen? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the powerful admonition, for the instruction you give us about the men and what they are to look like that are to lead your church. But Father, how it applies to each and every one of our lives. And I pray, Father, that each of my brothers and sisters today would heartily consider each of these qualifications, that they would zealously pursue them. And Father, that you, through the power of your Spirit, might show them that you have given them the ability to accomplish this, to defeat anger, to defeat pride, to to defeat greed, and the other things that constantly assail us. And Lord, that we might do so not for our own glory, but so that people might see the work that you are doing in us and that you might make us more effective communicators at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that and give you praise, asking it all in Jesus' name, amen.